Hello, I'm, I'm Andrew. I'm on the leadership team here at King's Church. And uh, it's my, it sounds such a cliche, but it's my pleasure and utter privilege to, to preach this morning. Um, I do want to say thank you immediately to Philip and um, a guy that maybe not everyone will know called Andy Chevrolet, who works, uh, Andy Chevalier, who works in the office um, and does a lot of sort of coaching and mentoring is the only way I can describe it. And one of the, the great things about Philip and Andy has been they've, uh, encouraged, stroke forced me to prepare well in advance because they were very willing to give me feedback and, and kind of just help me. And it's been so incredibly useful not having any of that sort of last minute nonsense, which sometimes I can be guilty of. I'm sure you know the feeling. But having prepared and, and had their sort of expert, expert guidance, I'm so grateful. Thank you so, so much. So as I say, it's been um, quite a long time in preparing. I remember last week, even the week before, I was sort of in, in the midst of this, and it's been wonderful. Um, you get so much out of the Bible when you're just reading it through anyway, but, but really immersing yourself in it, as you have to do for this kind of thing, has just been amazing. So, not last week, the week before, yeah, that was, um, that was budget week, if you can cast your mind back that far. That's how long I've been uh, preparing this, budget week, budget week. Always a laugh, budget week, isn't it? <laughs> No, I, I like politics a lot, and so obviously I was watching the budget speech, <laughs> um, and he was going on and on about tax, and uh, I mean that's not actually that interesting, is it? But I, I like that kind of thing. <laughs> but what it did, it reminded me of that excellent phrase, that excellent quote from uh, Daniel Defoe, that the only certainties in life are death and taxes. The two certainties, right? Taxes and death. Which is strange, then, that most of our pop culture doesn't celebrate taxes or death. Mostly, the songs you hear on the radio will be love, having fun, friendship. As far as I know, there have been no songs, well, very few songs that deal in death, and none that I can think of that deal in, <laughs> that deal in tax, or at least not that have sold in any quantity. Um, <laughs> and that's despite the two certainties behind me being taxes and death, and despite... People like Gary Barlow, who've actually hit the headlines relatively recently with his slightly too clever tax planning. And I'm not saying he was acting fraudulently. I'm just saying it could have become the subject of a really interesting and original pop song. <laughs> what a wasted opportunity that was. Although having said that, talking about fraudulent activity and dishonesty, there is a lot of that in the pop world, if you look closely, which, which I have as part of preparing the sermon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, take Lady Gaga, Professor Green. Just a couple of examples. Professor Green, he has no qualifications, let alone a professorship from a reputable university. <laughs> and Lady Gaga, she is not from an aristocratic family. <laughs> I'm serious. My research dug up no sign that she was from an aristocratic family, nor that she'd married into an aristocratic family. There is, as far as I know, no Lord Gaga from whom she's taken her title. I think she invented that title <laughs> simply to further her pop career. <laughs> anyway, you get my point. I don't want to be talking exclusively about Professor Green and Lady Gaga. I want to make a broader point, which is that these people tend not to celebrate death and tax, the two certainties. But of course, the Bible, the Bible does talk about both tax and death. You might remember one of Jesus' most famous brilliant phrases when asked a trick question about whether they should pay tax to the Roman authorities. And he says to them, bring me a coin. And he asks them whose head is on the coin. 
and they say Caesar's. And he comes up with this amazing phrase, give to Caesar that which, it's, which is Caesar's, and to God that which is God's. Absolutely brilliant. But I think that part of the reason this, this quote resonates to us is that there are two things we just don't like to talk about. And as a society, death really holds nothing more than an abrupt end or a great unknown. We have no natural reason to see in death anything other than an abrupt end. We just can't explain what happens beyond, beyond death. But what if death was not the end? What if death was just the beginning? What if death was something to look forward to? And what if beyond death was something truly amazing? Wouldn't that alter our perspective on death? Wouldn't that alter our perspective on, on dying? Sure, we'd still want to alleviate suffering, and we would still miss our loved ones, but if we were absolutely sure that death led to something glorious and wonderful, it would completely alter the way we saw it. Now, death is a big deal, and the Bible has a lot of really positive things to say about it. Jesus told us, and ultimately demonstrated to us, that for his followers, death was not the end. Death was simply the beginning. Death led to life, in his words, eternal life. And we've been going through a series in a book called Acts, a preaching series. And so far we've seen how the early church has uh, been born, if you like. Jesus has gone back to heaven. He's left his disciples with very clear instructions, not very clear detailed guidance, but very clear instructions as to what they must do once he goes back to heaven, when they receive the Holy Spirit. And our passage that we're going to look at today gives us several angles on death to life. And so we're going to be pulling out of the, the passage that we look at today what it is to go from death to life. And we'll see that in, in several, different, several different angles. And I've called the session today, Following Jesus, A Journey from Death to Life. We're going to be reading from Acts chapter 7, which in the Church Bibles is on page 916. And just as a reminder or perhaps to fill you in if you weren't here last week, we had got to the point in Acts where one of Jesus' close disciples, Stephen, a man, we're told, who was full of the Holy Spirit, had been accused falsely of, of a number of charges, including blasphemy. And Philip took us last week through Stephen's speech in defense of these trumped-up charges. So let's read on from Acts chapter 7, verse 54 page 916 in the Church Bibles. Acts chapter 7, verse 54. Now, when they'd heard these things, they were enraged, that is, the people listening to Stephen, and they ground their teeth at him, at Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the things that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So here we see Philip uh, at the end of our passage doing something amazing that leads to great joy. But at the beginning of the passage, we're still very much in Stephen's uh, sort of final um, defense to, to the crowd, the very hostile crowd around him. So there's a real contrast in, 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 the, in what we've just read. And Stephen has been, as I said earlier, accused of, of blasphemy. And so he's been given this chance to give quite a lengthy defense. And he does that by taking his, his listeners, the Jewish authorities around him who are so angry with him. He takes them through a, a potted version, a potted history of, of their um, dealings with the prophets, with the way God has spoken to his people throughout the Old Testament. Um, and then just at the moment we've joined them, just as we arrive on the scene, they're starting to really up the ante and they become extremely angry with him, eventually becoming murderous. So we're going to look at three ways in which death leads to life. Firstly, we'll look at Stephen and how his death leads to life with Jesus. Then we'll look at the early church and how the persecution and death that they experienced led to growth and life. And then we'll look at, for us, how Jesus' own death and resurrection leads to our eternal life. So coming back to Stephen now, He's been very eloquent. They've listened to him for quite a long time, as Philip pointed out last week. That whole chapter with Stephen giving his defense is really very long, and they've sat or stood and listened. And at the point we've joined them, they've suddenly started getting much more agitated. Why is that? Well, the key is the verse where Stephen says to them, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And it's that phrase, the Son of Man, that has taken them from being an angry crowd to being a murderous crowd that ultimately want to stone him to death. So what is so significant about him seeing the Son of Man? In the Old Testament, uh, a prophet called Daniel had a number of visions, and the Jews were very, very familiar with Daniel. He was one of their main prophets. And one of the visions that Daniel had seen was a glimpse into heaven itself. And he'd seen, as he described it, one like a Son of Man with God in heaven. And he'd seen the Son of Man being given an eternal kingdom with great glory. And the Jews at the time recognized this as a vision of their Messiah, of the Chosen One that God kept promising throughout the Old Testament. There are various points at which God promises that they will receive a Savior. They will have a Messiah, a Messiah sent to them who would restore Israel back to greatness. And the Messiah simply means God's Chosen One. So Stephen, equating this Messiah to Jesus, is basically saying to these Jewish leaders, you have killed your long-awaited Messiah. Now, Jesus Christ is, is the way we normally refer to him, and Christ is simply the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word for Messiah. 
the New Testament was written in Greek, so we have Jesus Christ, but it's an exact equivalent to being, him being called Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Chosen One. So let's look a little more closely at this phrase, the Son of Man. On many occasions, Jesus explicitly used the phrase Son of Man to describe himself. And it's a really lovely phrase. It, it refers both to his humanity and to his divinity, the fact that he is Son of Man and Son of God. For example, on one occasion, he says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. On another occasion, he said that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. And so Stephen has now said to them, this Jesus that you've killed is your long-awaited Messiah. Now, they fundamentally disagree that Jesus was the Messiah, or they would not have wanted to kill him. And even worse, he has now said, you've killed him. So at this point, the crowd grab Stephen and take him out of the city so that they can stone him. And looking at it from the crowd's perspective, this was actually the prescribed thing to do. If someone was guilty or was accused of blasphemy, then their own law said that that person needed to be stoned to death. We can see that in the Old Testament. It's quite detailed. It says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. And then it goes on to explain how they were to bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing and stone that man or woman to death. On the evidence of two or more witnesses, a person shall be put to death. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of the people. And that's exactly why in our passage we read that the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man called Saul. They were acting in accordance with this, this law that they had. They were so so convinced that Stephen was being completely blasphemous in comparing Jesus, the man that they'd recently crucified, with this long-awaited Messiah. Now, Stephen doesn't offer any resistance. In fact, as they're stoning him, he calls out. He prays for them. He calls out, Lord, receive my soul. Stephen is so convinced that the best is yet to come. He's not afraid to die. He knows that Jesus is waiting for him in heaven. We were told earlier that Stephen was a man, a man full of the Holy Spirit. So he would have had that assurance that the best is yet to come, that, that your new life starts now, but that beyond death is where it starts in some senses. But in addition, he's now had this direct vision of Jesus, the Son of Man, waiting for him in heaven. Now, the Holy Spirit also enables us to do things that are completely alien to our natural character. For example, forgiving people in really difficult circumstances. And here we see Stephen able to do exactly that. He's able to forgive the very people who are now stoning him to death. It's, a, it's an incredible contrast between those gnashing their teeth at him, stoning him to death, and he, full of the Holy Spirit, able to forgive them in the midst of that dreadful situation. And we're told he falls to his knees and cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then we're told, having said that, he falls asleep. Now, that's a really lovely phrase again that the New Testament writers often use when they're talking about people dying and it brings with it the sense that in the same way when you fall asleep you awake so too when you die in Christ you awake in Christ exactly as we see Stephen has had this vision he knows that he's going to be with Jesus so Stephen's death has led him into a new and glorious life with Jesus the son of man so now let's look at how this impacts the wider church. Let's look at how the church also goes from death to life as a result of this, this seemingly dreadful episode. 
And this, this Saul character now starts to play a more prominent role. We're told that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. But we can see, reading on, this was an absolute body blow to the early church. It says that devout men lamented over Stephen. In other words, they were completely devastated. And it's easy for us, looking back on that episode, to say, well, it was all part of God's plan. And of course it was. But at the time, they must have felt utterly devastated. Here's one of their main people out there spreading the news exactly as Jesus commanded them to, and yet now dead. <coughs> and in addition, we're told that Saul was ravaging the church. Now, it's easy to gloss over words like that in our English translation, but this is a word that elsewhere in the Bible is used for real destruction. There's uh, an example of a vineyard whose walls have fallen down, and the wild animals come and ravage this vineyard to utter destruction. Perhaps for us Kingston urbanites, a better in image is what foxes can do to your bins. Right? <laughs> so the rubbish is strewn all over the road. I mean, it's, it's not a gentle act, it's utter destruction. And that's genuinely what the early church felt was happening to them. This wasn't a one-off, this was systematic. We're told that Paul enters house after house, dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So it must have seemed doubly perplexing. They knew that Jesus had this amazing mission for them, and he'd given them very clear instruction that they would wait in Jerusalem for him, and then ultimately they would be his witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And yet here they're seeing their first attempt to follow his instruction, ending in death and destruction. But what in fact happened? Well, it says those who were scattered went about and preached the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And Jesus had prepared his followers for exactly this event. As I just mentioned, at the earlier uh, part of Acts, he says to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And here we can see the very early beginnings of that, Judea and Samaria. And of course, that progress has continued right up to today, towards the end of the earth. And I thought it might be helpful just at a glance to see just how far the gospel has come. So we've got in the very middle of the map, that tiny red speck is Israel. And we can see the countries that are colored kind of purpley, pinky blue are where the gospel has reached. I'm not at all at this point trying to say anything about people's commitment to Jesus, that's a different topic, but I'm just showing how far the gospel has actually reached. And so from its early start in Israel, very ends of the earth. So the four corners of the earth are now covered by this message. People have had an opportunity to hear it from Israel to Samaria and now to the ends of the earth, exactly as Jesus predicted. And back then, that wasn't obvious that that would be the case. You know, they only really knew the Roman world, which was around the Mediterranean. And yet, in exact accordance with Jesus' words, it has now reached to the ends of the earth, which is wonderful. We've still got a lot of work to do. We really have a lot of work to do, but it has, the message has reached the ends of the earth. So what happened all those years ago when the first Christian evangelists moved out from Jerusalem and, and went to Samaria? So we're told that the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So now we've come right back to that tiny point in the middle of that big map. We're back at the early evangelists, the early Christians, and we're looking at Philip. 
who's gone out uh, to proclaim the word of God. And the wonderful thing is that all the Christians who were persecuted in those early days and who were then scattered went about preaching the gospel of Jesus. It's almost as if Jesus arranged it this way. Now, of course, he would, wouldn't he? Because he's God. But they were told what to do, but they weren't told how to do it. What they made absolutely sure about, though, was that they continually prayed whenever they came up against difficulties. And in fact, the persecution that they've just gone through, which has resulted in them being scattered and preaching the gospel as they go, is a direct answer to prayer from earlier in Acts. And we can see that when the when the first persecution started, the disciples prayed, not that it would stop, but rather they said, Lord, look upon these threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And in our passage, we're told that there was much joy in that city and that having gone from a situation of being ravaged to destruction, the church is now starting to grow beyond its initial location in Jerusalem and Judea. And the church really came to life through this awful persecution. It's starting now to fulfill its destiny, which is to bring the good news of Jesus and the forgiveness that's now available to people through what he did on the cross, through his death and his resurrection. So what have we seen so far? We've seen that the individual in Christ in our example, Stephen, the individual goes from a position of death to life. And then we've seen that Jesus' plans for that early church also resulted in them moving from death to life. And of course, both those situations, whether we're talking about us as individuals or the church, they both rest completely on what Jesus himself did in terms of dying and rising from the dead to pay the price for our sins. And so as we look at how Jesus' death leads to our life, I want to spend a bit of time on the background to his death and his resurrection and how it actually results in life for us. And for people that have been Christians for a while, that's always good to be reminded of this fact. And if you're here today exploring Jesus and his claims, this is the very foundation on which it all rests, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So how does an awful, awful death 2,000 years ago of an innocent man have any relevance to us here today? And to answer that question, we need to take a brief look back at God's plan for the world. From time immemorial, the Jewish nation were expecting a savior. We referred to that earlier. They had a number of prophecies telling them that someone would come, someone would appear who would, who would be God's chosen one, would save them and restore Israel to greatness. As soon as humans first turned away from God, God had been promising us a way back. And the trouble with having a perfect creator is that our imperfection prevents us from relating to him. Perfection and imperfection just don't mix. And to try and illustrate the point, I want you to imagine an international organization that's dedicated to the eradication of fraud and corruption in government. So you've got this international organization whose sole purpose is the eradication of fraud and corruption in governments. You probably know corruption can be a real issue for third world countries where they divert aid intended for the poor and instead use it to build palatial buildings for the ruling elite. Or on, on, a, on a, lesser, uh, a less serious example, in a lot of countries you've got a situation where you've got to pay a bribe to a local official to get your passport done. 
So bear with me on this illustration, because it does come good. But you've got this international organization dedicated to the eradication of governmental corruption. Now, a lot of governments aren't corrupt, so they've already joined this organization. And then a government comes along from a country where you need to bribe local officials to get things done. And that government says, we want to join this organization. And they are told that you can't join, because in your country, people need to pay a bribe to get, get stuff done. And the government turn around and say, well, it's not the case uh, that we're diverting funds for the poor to our own use. You know, we're not that corrupt. But nevertheless, you can see the point that for an organization dedicated to the eradication of government corruption, to enable a government who is corrupt to join that organization would be to defeat its entire purpose. It would change its character. It would no longer be an organization dedicated to the eradication of governmental corruption. And it's exactly the same with a perfect being. For a perfect being to tolerate or to accept my imperfection, my, my selfishness, my, my inability, my unwillingness to follow his plan for my life, in short, to accept my sin, would be for that perfect being to change his character. God would no longer be God if he were to simply accept my sin. And the Bible explains that the result of our sin is, is death. The result of us turning away from God is death. Now God's chosen people, the Jews, had been given a system of animal sacrifice to help deal with this. And they had to perform these sacrifices very regularly to keep paying for their sins until this promised saviour appeared. In other words, the death of an animal, a sacrificial lamb, would, on a temporary basis, make payment for their sins. And when Jesus appeared in Israel, he was described by a local prophet, a man who lived at the time called John, a very respected Jewish prophet. He, Jesus was described by John as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as we saw earlier, Jesus himself claimed to be the son, of, the son of man who would give his life as a ransom for many. Now, Jesus did not appear out of nowhere with no prior warning. This was a, a momentous point in human history. The long-awaited Messiah who would pay on some permanent basis for the sins of God's people to replace this animal sacrifice system that they had been given. He didn't just arrive with no warning. There are lots and lots of prophecies in the Old Testament that point us towards him. And a really amazing one is in Isaiah 53. So I wanted to just draw a few points from that. It's quite a long chapter. I would say, before, going, before I go into this, if you haven't made yourself familiar with Isaiah 53, you really must do after, after today. It's got little phrases like, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. No iniquity there is simply a word for our wrongdoing, for our sin. So the Lord has laid our iniquity on him. He was oppressed and afflicted like a lamb led to the slaughter, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And then it goes on to say that the righteous one will make many to be accounted righteous. So in some way, through his righteousness, others would be made righteous. Now, if you read all of 53, all of chapter 53, it really is so... Um, so perfectly describing Jesus that you might come to the conclusion it had been inserted in the Old Testament after Jesus. And that was, for a long time, what people said. This prophecy is far too accurate to have been anything other than a forgery put into the Old Testament by the early Christians. 
In the 1950s, though, so that's a long time after the New Testament was written, so 1950 years later, we discover a whole load of ancient parchments in Israel in the near the Dead Sea. And amongst these parchments, which can be dated back to 100 BC, amongst these parchments are whole copies of Isaiah's book. So we've got in our possession copies of Isaiah's book, which themselves date from 100 years before Jesus existed. And in those books, we are told that there's a prophecy about this chosen one coming who will make the unrighteous righteous, who will take on himself our sins, and who will not be sinful himself, but like a lamb led to the slaughter, will take on our wrongdoing. Now that's an amazing, amazing prophecy. So I would really encourage you to get into that. Get, get home and have a look at Isaiah 53. You won't believe what you read. If it's the first time you've seen it, it's quite spine-tingling. And as I say, we've got copies of this from 100 years before Jesus was born. So we know it's a genuine prophecy. And the, the Old Testament is full of that sort of thing. Jesus didn't come out of nowhere. Jesus was expected for a very long time. So what we're told in this prophecy is that at some point in the future, remember Isaiah was writing 700 years before Jesus, at some point in the future, this system of animal sacrifice would be replaced by a once and for all sacrifice that would be willingly performed by a human, a human who would be acceptable to God. Now, there are quite a few legitimate responses, some of which are uh, sort of to turn down that offer. And that is legitimate. Why would God take a perfect person and kill them? That itself seems very, very unjust. And also, wouldn't that person themselves have to pay the price for their own sins? So those are two very, very legitimate responses to this idea that God would provide someone who would take our sins. Firstly, wouldn't that human have to pay the price for their own sins? And the only, way, the only way around that would be if that human was perfect and had no sins of their own to pay for. But of course, humans that are perfect are in very short supply. And secondly, wouldn't it be very unjust to take a human, especially a perfect one, and make them pay the price for other people's sins? That doesn't sound like a just solution at all. But before looking at that second objection, I just want to tell you a brief story which brings to light the idea that a judge can also have mercy. So there are two guys, they're at university, one's called James and one's called Chris. And James and Chris are studying law. And they both love their subject and they're both working really hard and they both graduate with flying colours. James goes off and becomes a barrister, amassing a huge personal fortune and going on, to, uh, going on ultimately to preside over cases brought by the Crown Prosecution Service. Chris, on the other hand, uh, sets up a, an agency representing those in the, in the music world, uh, very glamorous, uh, and a fantastic career with his own company uh, during the good times. It really was amazing. But come the recession, not so good. And so Chris's company falls on really hard times, and he has to lay off staff, and ultimately ends up fiddling his tax returns for several years. And by the time this comes to light, he owes over a million pounds in back tax, an amount that he simply can't pay, even if he were to sell his family home and all his possessions. So he ignores several tax demands, uh, and eventually the case has to come to court. And so Chris enters the courtroom and sees to his horror that the presiding judge is James, his old friend from university. And James also recognizes Chris. And to his horror, as the case proceeds, James realizes that he's going to have to convict Chris. There is absolutely no way 
around that. Of course, the court has to ensure that justice is done. And so James has to sentence Chris and tells him that unless he pays this tax demand in full within five days, he will have to go to prison. And Chris, of course, knowing that he can't pay this, starts to cry, breaks down, knows that he's going to go to prison and lose, all his, well, lose his entire life. So case closed. And as James steps down and takes off his judge's robes, he goes over and he pays the price in full for Chris's tax demand. So in that one person, James, you see both the judge that has brought justice to this case, and then you see in that same person the friend that has paid the price so that Chris can go free. And although that isn't a perfect analogy, one is never going to be able to provide a perfect analogy for God, it comes quite close to explaining what God did in Jesus. God, as we've seen through these amazing prophecies, was always going to send a man to take our sins. That was his plan for us from the word go. And on the cross, we can see how Jesus, in calling out to God, realizes that he is now accepting the sin of the whole world and is cut off from God at that point. He cries out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He also cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we saw both of those phrases in Stephen, when Stephen earlier was being stoned to death. But the key difference here is that whereas Stephen saw this vision of Jesus waiting for him in heaven, Jesus, of course, at that moment of death, bore the full weight of the world's sin and was so completely rejected by God that he called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I asked at the start, what if death was not the end? What if there was something wonderful to look forward to? Well, I can tell you now that because Jesus had not sinned, death could not hold him. And that's why he rose from the dead three days later. He conquered death for us. And his sacrificial death means that we can be born again into a life that has no end. A life that continues after our physical death into eternal life. And all this is available to us because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Now, I don't want to give the impression that Jesus is relevant to us now only because of this great promise of a future life after we die. Because there is so much more right now that's available to us as we believe in him and as we put our trust in him. New life with God starts right away. And I can testify to that. Uh, we sang earlier a song had a line, I fell in love with the world. And I remember being at university. It was fantastic, really fantastic. I mean, look, there's no point in denying that going away from God can be a lot of fun. Right? I mean, he's made us as creative individuals. We are his creation, and being with his creation is always great. And if we do stuff in the short term, we can have a lot of fun. I had lots and lots of fun at uni. 95% of the time, I'd say I was having a lot of fun. 5% of the time, not so good. When I was on my own, I didn't have access to artificial stimulants. I wasn't with friends. Those were quite bad times, those 5% of my, of my time there. But 95% of the time was fantastic fun. I really enjoyed what I was doing. But leaving university and getting a flat on my own, not so good. In fact, extremely bad. I had nothing. I, ha I was so shallow. I had no foundation. There was nothing in me that made me proud of who I was as a person. In fact, quite the contrary. I was appalled at what I was. I was an idiot, a complete idiot. Um, and God appeared to me in a, in, in a way that's hard to describe. And, and really very firmly, but very gently, just turned me around. It took a long time. It took months 
<laughs> tears. And uh, I mean, honestly, once I'd become a Christian at that point, telling people at work about this great new life I discovered was very hard because I was so upset a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I found Jesus. You really must, you really must find Jesus yourself. It's, you know, I'm very upset. <laughs> it was really hard. But over maybe five, six, ten months, something like that, he just dealt with lots of things in my life. I had no, I had no right to ask him to, to, um, to help me out. I, had I knew he existed. I had deliberately turned my back on him because I thought I could have a much better time on my own. But over those months, um, God just dealt with things. He really did. So look, if you're, if you're not a Christian today, this offer is available to you right now. If we allow Jesus, he will restore us and he restores our inner life, both areas that we've messed up ourselves, which was very much what I'd done, or areas where other people have messed up against us. And the, the experience of moving from death to life starts the moment we acknowledge the wrong we've done. We ask for his forgiveness. We stop trying to run our own lives, and we follow him. And that process is called repentance. So we, we forget the fact that we want to run our lives ourselves, and we look to him, and we say we're sorry for the things we've done wrong and we look to him for his forgiveness. And guess what? It's there right away, right now. It's absolutely not about trying harder. God gives us his Holy Spirit when we turn to him. We saw that earlier. Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit. He wasn't trying in any sense. He was just following what God had for him. And being filled with the Holy Spirit gives us real power to live the life that God wants for us. And if you are a Christian here today, Perhaps you've slipped back into trying to please God through striving. It's so easy to do. It's our natural inclination. Everything else in life, well, very often everything else in life, is about trying. And that's just not the way with God. And we need to be constantly on our guard that we don't slip back into trying to win his approval. That really is not what it's about. Doug's word earlier referenced that very clearly, very helpfully. Are we living in the light of what God has given us through this death-to-life journey? He promised us abundant life. So just take a moment now to think about any areas of your life where you're, you know that you're striving. You've stopped receiving that freedom that you used to know. You'll know the area I'm talking about because there'll be a sense of helplessness, a kind of burden, as if you're carrying something you simply can't shift. And Jesus says, Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you peace. I'll give you rest for your souls. That's what it is to follow Jesus. This death to life will give you rest for your souls. It's the most wonderful offer. Perhaps I could ask the band to come up just as we close. And so as we've seen today, whether it's individuals like Stephen moving from death into life, or the church herself moving from a period of persecution and death into that glorious vitality. It's all possible because God himself became a man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sinner's death for us, and then rose again and offers us forgiveness, acceptance, and life. And ultimately a wonderful future that starts right now and continues beyond death. And following Jesus really is a journey from death to life. So I'm going to hand back to Philip now. Thank you. I just want to help us to respond as we begin to worship. We've got some time.